0: Supposed to be. A what is bad is not what they are doing. What would be bad is for us not to fight back.
1: Hey ho, let's go. This is one hundred two point three WHIV, and you are listening to Resistance Radio, and we are broadcasting live from the Ace Hotel in the Three Keys Room. Give it up, y'all. We got a live audience here. All right. it is a pleasure to be here. My name is Dr. Mark Allendary, and this is a very, very special edition of Resistance Radio because uh, this is something that's really right up my alley. What we're going to be talking about today is the Louisiana State Hepatitis C Elimination Program, and we are incredibly lucky to have uh, the two individuals that are actually really leading this effort, and that's Dr. Rebecca Gee and then Dr. Alex Ballew. Dr. Rebecca Gee is the Secretary of the Louisiana Department of Health, and it is a pleasure to announce that under Dr. Gee's leadership, over 450,000 Louisianans are now newly insured under Louisiana's Medicaid expansion. Y'all give that up for that. Woo, woo. That is an amazing thing. Dr. Gee is an OBGYN by training, and she is now leading the nation in developing the first Hepatitis C elimination program. Also with us is Dr. Alex Ballou, who is the Assistant Secretary of Health and who's also leading the effort toward hepatitis C elimination. It really is a pleasure to have both Dr. Key and Dr. Ballou on, uh, on Resistance Radio tonight. Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much.
1: Such a pleasure. I guess let's just kind of just jump right into things. I know that your time, Dr. Gee, is is uh, is limited today. Uh, so we have you for about a half hour. So we're going to focus probably the first half hour or so uh, on on that, and then we'll get into kind of the nitty-gritty and some more of the details of the actual program itself with Dr. Ballou uh, in just a little while. So, you know, the first question is you're an ob And and I certainly and I knew you when you were at LSU as an ob and then kind of coming out of the gates once you became the uh, secretary, um, kind of hepatitis C all of a sudden kind of was on the table, at least to me in retrospect, it seemed like it was on the table from the get-go. How did you you make that leap, OBGYN, to hepatitis C, infectious diseases? Uh, Tell us, kind of walk us through that story.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having us on your program. So yeah, no, the governor asked me to do two things when I took this job. Number one, expand Medicaid, which we did. Uh, He signed the executive order for Medicaid expansion on his first full day in office. And that was probably the most rewarding thing I'll ever be a part of. You know, hundreds of thousands of people got health care. My own patients got health care. People that had put off um, mammograms and preventive care are now healthy, getting care. And he also said, "Rebecca, you got to exp- you got to make people healthier in Louisiana." And I said, "Well, hmm. you know." So I started off thinking about let's deal with um, you know the obesity epidemic, and that seems kind of daunting. And then you think about chronic disease, and that's kind of daunting. That takes a while. But here we have an infectious disease, hepatitis C, that is the leading killer in our country, the leading infectious disease killer, hepatitis C. More than all 60 next most common infectious diseases combined, and we did not have a way to pay for treatment. And in our country, the wealthiest nation on this earth, it was unacceptable to me and the governor that we would have a cure. And this isn't complex. It's either you get it or you don't. So we had a cure for this, and only 3% or fewer of people could get this because we simply couldn't afford it. And that's what really empowered us to think about, okay, how can we think a little different about this? This is not okay. Let's come up with a different way to pay for pharmaceuticals. And that's what is so exciting. Uh, Louisiana is the first state in the nation to have a plan to think different, to think outside the box, to eliminate hep C and to make that dedicated effort. It's great to be leading, but it's because the governor was, was brave enough to take on the pharmaceutical industry, to take on this illness that has had a stigma in the past, but now we've announced it's no more, right? Because you can cure it. There's no reason for stigma. And to allow it to have this journey, because the journey really took three years. We started in June of 16. So right after the Medicaid expansion, we identified this issue and said, we're going to deal with it. But it wasn't a quick fix. We were told no 50 times.
1: Right. I would, so, I would yeah. imagine. So let me just kind of add into context here a little bit, um, uh, just kind of around the edges, in that what we're talking about is uh, uh, when you look at HIV, we have about 1.1 million cases of HIV. That is certainly a lot. But when you look at hepatitis C, we have three times uh, the numbers of, of, of people who are experiencing chronic hepatitis C. And, of course, exposure is more than that, but that's, that's a different story. In the last... Seven or eight years, what we've seen is an explosion of new medications that are remarkable because in the days when I was an infectious disease fellow, the treatments, and I watched some of those treatments using uh, interferon and, and ribavirin, and they were... the the original treatments for hepatitis C, and they were very, very, very tough. uh, And uh, the the success rates were very, very small and oftentimes just not really worth it. But we always knew that these new medications were coming down the line. They looked very much like HIV medicines. And so a lot of the HIV docs uh, and infectious disease doctors were super excited because these were medicines that we felt comfortable with. But then, of course, what you're talking about taking on the pharmaceuticals is that the medications, these life-saving medications, right, are prohibitively expensive, even for those that can afford it. They're still somewhat prohibitively expensive. Some of the original price tags were, I think, Harvoni. I think when it first came out was something like at seventy or eighty thousand. It was ninety.
0: Try a Bentley. It went from a Bentley to a souped-up Honda. Yeah. And when I got you know when I took over, it was the Suja Panda, and just 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 multiply that by thirty seven thousand people, which is how many people in Medicaid had this. You couldn't afford it, and the governor and I had a two billion dollar deficit. So on the chopping block was the Medicaid program, you know, nursing homes, higher education, filling our potholes. I mean, and was I going to go to the people of the state and say, "Oh, listen, we need another half a billion dollars to cover?" You know hep C there was no way so it was just it was too much money and also it's an expensive drug and lots of people have this condition so it, it was it was a perfect storm of, of situation that led to a, you know a parsity of access to treatment which is what we were trying to solve
1: and then also just one last uh, one last element here to, to talk about the context um, Louisiana has some of the highest numbers of hepatitis C in the country, so that also that also made for a very difficult situation. Like you said, uh, those that are on Medicaid and those that are in the Department of Corrections uh, make up quite a number. Uh, and 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 I and I agree with the effort of it was just our moral obligation. I mean, like I say, we don't even have a treatment for the common cold, right? But here we were able to cure a virus. I mean, that's amazing. We've, we were able to eradicate a virus once before. That was kind of cool smallpox in the mid-70s. Well,
0: through vaccines, but this is the first cure. This is the first Large-scale cure, cure. Of a virus. And when I took over, I mean, here we were eliminating hep C in India, eliminating hep C in Egypt, and here the people of our own state and the nation that developed this drug were, were not given access. It just wasn't acceptable. So we fixed it.
1: So okay so now let's go into let's dive into that. So you get all these everyone's no 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 you know you you identify a, a, a perfectly treatable infectious disease it can be treated within 8 to 12 weeks. So those are uh, these were very rapid numbers. Obesity complex, it's going to take a long time to see outcomes. Chronic chronic diseases the same thing but an infectious disease, something like hepatitis C that has such a burden, right? The 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 bur- Burden of disease is great, especially in this state. And especially when we look at the people who are more likely to get hepatitis C, you're looking at those that experience far more social determinants of health uh, and individuals that otherwise just just have not had a fair shake of life, I've, I would say. And so being able to provide medications to individuals that otherwise would not experience it was just really a tremendous, tremendous feat. So now I kind of want to get into how did you... Go from everybody saying no, this is not possible. How did you break through that barrier? You had fifty no's. How, what was the 51, 51st yes? Like, how did you break through that barrier?
0: Yeah, and we got we got no's even until kind of the week before we were able to announce this. So what we did was we created uh, a lot of public pressure. So messaging around the zero-sum game that is a state budget, right? So I have a billion dollars more I spend on healthcare, that means a billion less on education. That it was not going to be possible to do a broad-scale elimination campaign, which we felt was what was right, morally right. Um, And then we, first we started by threatening the patent, saying, okay, what if we took the patent and fairly appropriated, so a good example of that is night vision goggles, right? So the U.S. government appropriated the technology for night vision goggles to protect the American interests and securities uh, and our, our soldiers fighting uh, for our country. But we, you know, we, we also can, has, has been threatened to do this for also medications like ciprofloxacin in the wake of the anthrax threat post-September 11th. So we said, well, what if we did that? What if we you know paid you a billion dollars for your patent and we could produce it as a U.S. government? Um, we had a conference at Hopkins. We got public input and, of course, it was overwhelmingly positive, except for from pharma. They didn't like it. Shocked. <laughs> Shocking. So we said, okay, what else? And in the meantime, we got some national press for this work. And I got a call one day from John Arnold. John is a billionaire who has a foundation and he's very interested in supporting pharmaceutical pricing reform. And he called me up and said, Rebecca, how can I help you? And I know we're in football season now. So I said, you know, John, we need an offensive line, right? So we can't just have the government. Governor and I, is the quarterback's running this ball down the field, we got to have some block and tackle. Other states need to be involved, also thinking about this problem. And I would like you to fund the National Governors Association. And he said, great, I'll do it. So we did. And we had 10 states participating in this effort. By then, we had come up with a different idea, uh, aside from the patent idea, which was this modified subscription model, um, also dubbed the Netflix model by, by some. And so we said, well, we want to look at the subscription model. And other states were very interested. By then, also another, uh, we at first was only Gilead in the market, but AbbVie came into the market. Merck came into the market as the market became more competitive. There was more interest, and the public pressure grew to look at something around pharmaceutical pricing. So fast forward three years of lots of pressure, lots of uh, we did you know TV, radio, media, Wall Street Journal. Um, lots of work with the with the advocacy groups because advocacy groups were threatening to sue us uh, because we weren't providing enough drug and we said stay with us. Look, we want to solve this program, this problem, not just for Louisiana but for the country, and not just for a few people but for everyone. So stick with us. Let's let's really look at adding the equation about how you price pharmaceuticals. So we um, were successful, and on July 15th of this year, we started giving the first patient her drugs, and it was extremely exciting and so rewarding, and um, we are blowing and going. We're gonna treat everyone in Medicaid, and everyone, also importantly to think, is our brothers and sisters in the correctional system. You know, 25% of the people that go, that have Hep C will, will be incarcerated, And we want them to leave jail, able to work well. We also don't want people to be denied treatment while they're incarcerated. Um, If you want to solve a public health problem, you need to think about everyone who's at risk. And so what was unique about RR was we always kept individuals who are incarcerated in mind as we looked at solving this problem. And I think that was really innovative and potentially sets the stage for a lot of other treatments that could be given to people who are incarcerated, including treating addiction for example, with the model that we've developed. So we've been groundbreaking. We've created a new set of circumstances, new way of of working with the pharmaceutical industry because what we ultimately came up with for at or about what we paid last year for that price and not much more, we're able to treat everyone, and we did it in partnership with the industry. So I would just give thanks to Gilead. I think a lot of people want to call, you know, want to blame the pharmaceutical industry for the high prices. And to that, I would say, yes, there is, there has been some greed. There has been some, some bad actors, but by and large, the way that we regulate, we don't really regulate them properly. We don't set the conditions for good prices. And so they're doing what for-profit companies do, which is to maximize profits. It's, it's on the onus of policymakers to think about setting the conditions for success. And that's what we did. In partnership with the pharmaceutical industry, we, we have a new way of paying for drugs. We are already made substantial progress. And I'm really excited about the applications to other areas as well. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's really amazing. And if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary. It's really an honor and pleasure to have Doctors Rebecca Gee and Dr. Alex Ballou uh, here, who are the uh, the Secretary of Health as well as the Assistant Secretary of Health for the state of Louisiana, and what- we're talking about is the Hepatitis C Elimination Program. So there's so much there that I wanted to kind of, I know we got 15 minutes, so I kind of wanted to unpack just a couple of the things. So what essentially happened was that the state uh, ultimately partnered with uh, with Gilead, and Gilead is a, is a pharmaceutical that is the largest pharmaceutical for Hepatitis C and HIV medications in the country probably arguable, arguably the world. They had several hepatitis C medications, and what ultimately happened was that a subsidiary was spun off. Was it a suedeja? How do you put it? A segua. A, 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 a segua. Yeah. Do we even know Is a segua? Is that just a made-up word? or is that, Does that mean spin we off off of a bigger? Yeah. No idea. Yeah. Got it. And then so what they did is they took one of their, their medications uh, uh, that's called Epclusa, And Ebclusa was then created a, uh, became a generic. So, and and that is the thing that is, I mean, there are so many firsts here that I wanted to kind of highlight them and really give you guys credit for some of the first that you guys have done. Cause I, you know, I tongue in cheekly will say in the lecture that, you know, Louisiana, you know, oftentimes top of the worst list, bottom of the of the best list. But here's where really we're at the top of multiple lists here. And the first thing the that- Good
0: you, list. Yes,
1: the, the, the best list, really, as an infectious disease doctor and public health practitioner, I would think the best of all well, and, and just
0: real quick, let me just say, it's because of the governor's Medicaid expansion, this was possible. Without course. that, We would never be talking about treating people in corrections. We would not be talking about treating low-income working adults. And because Medicaid, prior to Governor Edwards, was a program largely for elderly people, individuals with disabilities, pregnant women, and kids, and that was it. So what he did expanding Medicaid set the stage for all of this. Yeah, and, yeah. and
1: also let me just give credit to uh, Governor Edwards in that he said day one, uh, and he did do on day one and uh, signed Medicaid. And I remember that moment of just feeling so proud. Uh, and then two or three weeks later, all of a sudden people started calling me. Friends started calling me saying, "Hey, I'm getting these like Medicaid cards," or they're telling me all of a sudden I have Medicaid. Like it, it wasn't that people like like after it was signed. It felt as though the state was pursuing those individuals, uh, uh, saying, "Hey, you not qualify for Medicaid. You know, go ahead and start seeing a doctor." And, and we that was did. amazing. Yeah, no, I know.
0: <laughs> Almost five hundred thousand people. And it, just to say, elections have consequences. I know people sit on their laurels and think, "Oh, it'll be here forever." It may not be. I so, know. you care about Medicaid and health care. I want you to listen to what people are saying in this campaign, and please, for the love of God, go vote.
1: Please go and vote. Go (laughs) vote. It's so important. Please, please, please. Okay. Elections have consequences, and
0: one of the consequences of Governor Edwards being elected was we expanded Medicaid, and we are the first state in the nation to tackle Hep C.
1: And I will say I'm very proud that on day two, he also signed an executive order protecting the LGBTQ community, and unfortunately, that had its own issues but it really those first two acts that he did really kind of really to me show kind of what he's really what, what he's really interested in and what he campaigned on
0: that's right. Equal pay for women. Right. Yes. I mean, he is. He has got... His, his North Star is in the right direction, so let's just remember that. Yes. In, yes. And we're, we live in a time, in a partisan time, where everyone... There's one thing you do that people don't like, and so they say, well, I'm going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Well, don't. I mean, here's somebody who has done a great job, fought for m- raising the minimum wage, equal pay for women, health care. Um, he's the a, a son of a charity nurse. He understands what it's like uh, for people who need health care and when they can't get it, what that, that means to them. So so this is, we've moved in the right direction, so let's just set the stage, the elections, and then set the stage for all of this good stuff.
1: Please go and vote. There is, I, and we don't need to talk about this, but I am fearful that some of this stuff may, may go away. Um, and so, but let's stay in the positive. Okay, so some of the first. So, so one thing that happened out of this was that you went directly to Gilead. Gilead ultimately was who uh, the state ended up doing, working with. Gilead created the subsidiary, which I think is a first, I think, for a company to be able to create their own generic when before it had gotten off patent. And that medication that they used was a very, very good one. In fact, it was excellent. And there was a very smart reason why you guys chose it. And I was wondering if you could help us understand that in that it was, it's called Epclusa, it was pangenotypic, and it really took the complications of treating hepatitis away so you were looking at the doctors or the prescribers perspective to make it as easy as I'm assuming I'm I guess that's the question I'm assuming that you guys were that you chose that medication as as it was probably the most straightforward and most streamlined
0: so so it was it's a little more complex than that we did a, a request for information first to find out what people thought of this model and then we did what we called a solicitation for offers so we got the com- the companies that make this drug came in and gave us their bids as to what they could do for the state, we love Euclusa. Um, When we say pangenotypic, it means it can treat any type of genetic variant of Hep C, which is great. So we we don't have to worry about loo- you know leaving some people behind. Um, it has got a great side effect profile because if you uh, think about what profile. you know what you used to have to go through, people would go through these awful long treatments. They would get sick. They felt like they had the flu. So this is easy breezy, you know. Twelve weeks, twelve weeks, one pill a day. Yeah. And I am looking at Doctor Bu, who is another unsung hero here. Um, he came to the state in part, and a year into this work, we really looked like this was going to happen. And so Alex brought his family, his young family, here to New Orleans, and has been a huge part of the successful. Um, efforts that we've had and leads the public health side. So there's, there's, the, there's the, the, I, you know, the part that I was mostly involved in is, was the negotiation. How do we get this price? How do we make sure we can afford it? How do we shake up, uh, shake, shake the shackles out of the, you know, bush to, to get the pharmaceutical industry to say, okay, listen, we're going we're gonna to think a little bit different about pricing. But the, in, a, in a way, the more complex side is, how do I actually get this medication to every single person who has it? And that's what Dr. Bu has been really involved in, in thinking about along with our team that has incredible talent. And so it's, it's also been a little bit of a renaissance in Louisiana where we have IBM, we have Walmart, we have CVS and others saying, oh my gosh, this is so cool to think about this unlimited access and how could we reframe how we deliver healthcare to, to help you solve this problem. So it's been exciting. So not only have we, we innovated around the, the price, but we've inter- innovated around the delivery system, which is exciting.
1: And so when we are talking about the subscription model or the Netflix model, well, just to kind of add context to that, what that really is saying is essentially the state basically paid an upfront price to Gilead or a, 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 a segue. Thank you.
0: It's a, a, little, a little different. It's not, so Netflix has been coined by... Some folks, we actually don't call it Netflix because it's not exactly like that. What we do is we pay up to a cap, and then after that cap, we get 100% rebate. So it's a little different than a Netflix where you pay up front, but we, we have a maximum cap that we pay. And then after that, we get the rebate back. So it's a it's, it's similar to that, and that we know that the state is only at risk for a certain amount. And what's nice about that is, is some of the companies wanted or one of the companies wanted to do just volume, so the more you you give, the the less you pay, just a little bit. But that would not allow us to have unlimited access. So we really wanted something where we would be incentivized to treat everyone who has this virus. So that's what's exciting about the way that we've done it, is that after we meet that cap, then every single person that gets treated is no cost to the state. And so we have the potential of saving hundreds of millions of dollars long term on the, the Terrible consequences of this virus, you know, the cancer treatment, the liver transplants, and so on and so forth. So it's a it's a win-win model.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. And and um, I guess this segues very nicely into. Um, I know that coming up later this week, you've got some. Some announcements to make, but I think that there's a a, a bit of a precursor of an announcement um, in that I think that the in the, the July 15th or we're, we're in mid October I knew I was just telling the two of you today that I had four patients uh, for Hep C today. Two of them are at week ten of their Eclusa treatments, and I started two new people on Eclusa uh, today. And that's probably I probably have 20 to 25 people that are in the Eclusa. Um, I, prior to that, I was using Maverick and Harvoni, but of course, everybody now got flipped over to Epclusa. So I would imagine that I'm not the only doctor or prescriber who's using Epclusa right now. That's
0: right. So I'm going to let Dr. B you.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, we've we've seen uh, we've just seen tremendous uptake, and I think you know we're seeing really five times as much
1: prescribing going on right now, and and that's it's really amazing.
0: Tremendous. Yeah. So five <laughs> times the rate, and that's without full ramp up. I mean, we are yeah, developing that's right. a communications campaign. That's we've right. got it still our... early on.
1: And to be clear, five times from uh, over a period of years. What we would have seen
0: last year. Yeah. Yeah. But that's without, I mean, we've gone around, we've trained over 200 providers. Because what's so nice about this treatment is it's simple. And before, because it was so expensive, we had to make sure that you were really sick enough to really need it before you got it. Now, we just need to know your kidneys are okay you don't have a lot, you know, other conditions that might make you sick if you take this drug or we might need to think about before treating. And it's easy. So we've developed a new algorithm or model decision tree where you can look at it and say, okay, and pretty, pretty easily know if someone is eligible or not. So you don't really need those really tr- well-trained um, liver disease doctors anymore. You could use a nurse practitioner or a general practitioner it, it's exciting it,
1: it's almost embarrassing like I, I i like i'll go to providers and i'm like i know you guys think this is complicated because when we went to medical school it was complicated but it's almost embarrassingly simple like it's 12 week treatment go exactly. ahead were you gonna say something no,
2: no that, that's exactly it i mean there really should be as few barriers as possible we want you seeing you know the complicated cases that really need somebody thinking about how do i take care of somebody's ongoing hiv and hepatitis c at the same time right uh Really, the, the, the medication allows us to, to really push this into many more people's hands.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing. So I, I know you got to go. I have two more questions for you. One is, is the state... Um, so, okay, so today I saw a 21-year-old uh, person uh, who had an F0 uh, FibreShore score that never, ever, and this person stopped using IV drugs maybe about a year and a half ago. I'm going to get into more detail with you uh, later about this, uh, Alex, about the opioid epidemic and, uh, and hepatitis C but this person stopped using IV drugs about a year ago 2 years ago uh, so and newly you know and started about 3 years ago so this is a person who would have had to wait under the previous model possibly decades to get a treatment until, until they, they hit until an F3 and F4 and and I wanted to kind of share all this with this person but I could tell that this would have not like I would have yeah. been like you have no idea how yeah. lucky you are that we're able to treat your Hep C you know you're in an F-
0: When we say this, just real quick, when we say 3, 4, we're talking about the fibrosis score or how badly diseased your liver is. So we used to wait until you were really sick, had bad liver disease, and only then could we treat you. So we had to make you go through all kinds of testing, all kinds of visits. Now it's simple. You got it? Let's treat it. Easy.
1: It's unbelievable. So are you so for folks in the past that have been turned away, is, is, is Medicaid or the Medicaid providers, are they reaching out to those F zeros, F1s and F2s and telling them to go back and, and uh, get seen by their providers?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean and, and if they're not, we want to encourage anybody who's listening to do that. but by and large, large, we've been hearing stories about folks who you know knew that they weren't eligible, had had those tough conversations with their providers. Now they're getting called back in. I mean, the first week, I mean, we had stories of entire waiting rooms being, you know, dissolving into yeah. tears as folks were no. having yeah, It's and true. And remember, we
0: saw the lady who had gone through two pregnancies and was worried, would she be yep. there for her children? Yeah. Now, would or would live, lost right? Yeah. Yeah. Would she live? Yeah. Not to worry.
1: Yeah, it, it, It's exciting. It, it's unbelievable because when, I would, when someone would come in and they had an F-0 and F-1 or an F-2, and I would say, I can't, I can't push this through Medicaid. It's going to get denied. Because they would be like, so are you telling me that I have to be sick to get this medicine and, and having to walk somebody through that mental kind of explain what a triage was and you know, easy to talk about unless it's yeah. you yeah and you're the one yeah. that and
0: let me finish by saying one thing that was so exciting about this is this is it this was a initiative that appealed to everyone i mean we had everyone from senator cassidy who by the way is a liver doctor
1: sure. hep doctor himself
0: right to the Trump administration, to the pharmaceutical industry, to our advocates, people who are who are very invested in social justice. I mean, all of them fighting for this solution, which was incredible because what's so great about this is if you're into if you believe healthcare is a human right like I do, it's great for you. If you are fiscally conservative, this is a great plan for you because what does it do? It could potentially save the state hundreds of millions of dollars, allow people to work, come out of correctional facilities, healthy. You know, so this is what's nice about this, and there's so few things in this day and age that everyone can love. There should be something about our hep C strategy that everyone can love.
1: Absolutely. So I, we're right at the bottom of the, of the hour. I have one more question for you, yeah. and I know you need to go. But the, uh, um, I've been seeing a lot that the E in elimination stands for equity. Can you yeah. walk us through that? Because I think that's really beautiful.
0: Yeah, so we have a mantra at the department. It's nothing about me without me. So, number one, when we when we make any big decision, we make policy change, we involve the communities impacted in that decision, so that we're not doing things for them, but with them. Number one, but two is equity means, and, and I'm paraphrasing Martin Luther King saying, of all the injustices, you know, lack of access to healthcare is the most inhumane. And I believe that. Again, this is the wealthiest country on the planet. We have tremendous resources, we have uh, new buildings, you know, going up right and left in healthcare, and we have we seem to have the resources to do those types of things. But to deny people basic healthcare is just is is just was distasteful to me and unacceptable to the governor. And so, equity means that regardless of the color of your skin, where you come from, you have the ability to have access to treatment, to basic treatment that we all should should have so that's that's something that we we've established an office of community partnership and equity at the office of the secretary which is an exciting initiative and uh, we're Earl we're Benjamin
1: we're, dr. Uh, is, is he running? dr. Right? Benjamin
0: yeah, yeah. and yeah and we're looking at equity in all policies thinking about how can we um, achieve health equity and I and I do think it's important for us to hold our ship accountable uh, to think about equities, and I notice this all the time because almost every table I go to uh, is a table that looks very similar. Usually it's all male and it's all white, right? So when we have only the same kinds of folks at our table, not making, uh, not having diversity at that table, usually we don't make the kind of decisions that would be informed diversity of thought and experience. Um, and so One of the things we're dedicated to is making sure that we make decisions with diverse tables, and we ask the question of of who should be there helping to make the decision. And we are um, have not only had a um, process where we've seen your leadership in what their attitudes are, um, about race and equity, and um, partly that's important because when you are making decisions on behalf of, in our case, millions of people, you want to make sure that you know what your what your own attitudes and biases are, so you can correct for those when you make decisions. Um, and so, you know, this has been a really exciting initiative by the department. But equity is nothing about me without me. Making sure that we have access to health care for everyone, um, because ultimately we're all human beings. We're all loved by God. We're all deserving of basic health care. And certainly that was what the Medicaid expansion was about and what I believe, uh, and I believe it will endure, uh, even despite uh, whatever the politics are because people have seen the benefit in so many ways. But also hepatitis C is that hepatitis C is a disease and it's curable. And so in this day and age, in our nation, you should not have people that should have to wait a decade sick and worried. For um, For what? For what? Just because we can't afford it when we can't have access to the newest and best in other areas. So that's what we were looking to solve, and we are really, really proud that we're the first state in the nation to do it, and that we've led the way for others. Not only that, have thought about how this can be applied to other diseases and conditions. The NOA is now being replicated and advanced nationally. That has been a uh, really exciting, but most importantly, it's all been worth it when we go around the state and we see people who have hope, you know, who are have hope of future health, who have hope of being cured, who have hope of of not having to have this burden um, for the rest of their lives. So that's been really, really rewarding.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please give it up, with Dr. Rebecca Gee. This has been such an amazing. Thank you so much. Ah, uh, future surgeon general right here I'd like to thank so thank
0: well Dr. Biyu you're going to hear from next is is a rock star so thank you for having me
1: Thank you so very much and uh, I think Liana will will help you out thank you I really appreciate it
0: I know those on the radio can't see the shoes but the shoes are. I'm so jealous they are awesome so we need to take like tweet a picture of the shoes well, I want to do a quick selfie with all, the- all right
1: uh, so all that's right. cool all right, this is—I'm sure—compelling radio, but this is a selfie with all three of us right here. All right. Oh, hang we on. We got
0: Alex in there. We lost yeah,
1: yeah. a head. Hold we on. Lost, yeah, yeah, we lost. Leona, can you take a? Can you do this real quickly? And uh, I know that you're 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 going off right now uh, to do some mommy stuff. So thank you so much. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Dr. Gee. Thank you so much. Um, such a pleasure, and uh, I actually look forward to having you come back, because I want to talk more about how this model is working for other diseases as well. We're going to get to that Excellent. And vote, vote, vote. Everybody go and vote, please. And if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. And it's such a pleasure to have on uh, Dr. Alex uh, Bu, who is the Assistant Secretary of Health and who is leading the effort toward hepatitis C elimination in the state of Louisiana. So we have a half hour or so. So I guess let's just start about um, one of the things that when you go to um, the uh, website... In the presentations, it talks a lot about hepatitis C being a public health threat. Can you explain what, what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, well, this this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that um, hepatitis C is a, a, a very infectious, infectious disease. It's actually very easily transmitted. Um, we'll, we'll probably get into a little bit, you know, some of the common ways that it's uh, spread, but, but one of them is certainly through needle sticks. Right. Um, and, you know, training as i – I'm a primary care physician internist. Training in the hospital, um, we always would respond to, you know, needle sticks. At the hospital would be most worried about having. Hep- C, people would think about HIV as their big risk, but it was 10 times more likely that they'd be infected uh, just from a, a hollow needle stick. And, and that sort of carries over to the way that it's transmitted in population. It, it's very uh, infectious. And then, frankly, as we talked about earlier as well, people don't know they have hepatitis C. Very few people get sick when they first contract the virus. Um, and so, as a result, um, you can live for decades not knowing that you're infected. And why is that important? Because it wreaks havoc in your body, especially in your liver, increases not just damage to your liver, but risk of diabetes, cancers, and all sorts of things like that. And ultimately, as we talked about earlier, leads to death for way too many people, the deadliest infectious disease we have in the United States. Right, and then
1: I also like to remind people well, that we definitively know of several viruses that cause cancer. Of course, HPV, uh, for which fortunately we have a vaccine for. And now we actually have a cure for another virus that causes cancer that's really amazing. And I've got this great slide um, that shows very nicely about where we are in terms of mortality with the trajectory if we continue with these DAAs or these hepatitis C medicines. But then it also has another line of what would happen if we didn't have these medications and the spike at around in the 2030s or so is when we would see a majority of the uh, mortality and this is largely due to the fact that the highest the um, there's two populations that essentially have hepatitis C Um, one is the baby boomer generation and then the other one is the generation that we'll talk about in a second which is associated with IV drug use so right. can you explain to us why the baby boomers are at higher risk for hep c
2: yeah i mean part of it is you know uh, we don't know all the viruses that are in the world we didn't know hepatitis c was hepatitis c uh, for a long time and so frankly that that generation born between 1945 and 95 are uh, at increased risk because it was probably circulating in blood products uh, certainly that's the generation as well that served uh, the country in the vietnam war where we saw an uptick in um, some use of, of heroin and needle sharing and so those combinations meant that there's an increased risk of transmitting when people didn't know uh, that there was such a thing as hepatitis c to even be a, afraid of um, it was originally called non-a non-b hepatitis right so we knew there was something there we didn't know what it was and not until we isolated the virus were we able to actually name it as, as hep c and so I, it's really about getting those folks. Yeah, and
1: I was in medical school at the time uh, in the early '90s, and we were just—it wasn't called Hep C, I think, until the early '90s, or right? Yeah, right. and so I was like, just call it Hep C, right? Like non, non and now A, we're non on, like
2: Hep F, but you know, uh,
1: <laughs> oh, I think we're on Hep Z Z. So then what happened was that the, the um hepatitis C was then once they were able to identify it, they were able to remove it from the blood the, the national right. blood pool essentially. That's right. But
2: those folks who might have been exposed again, you know, maybe people with hemophilia or needing large volume transfusions, yes, yes. that entire generation could have been exposed. And just knowing how Effective this is in an infectious agent. It meant that most people exposed probably would actually go on to live with hepatitis C
1: Right, and then as you said, it's asymptomatic. Uh, in other words, you don't feel any symptoms. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the other positive Until thing too here late. Until it's too late. Unfortunately, the risk of sexual transmission is also very, very, very small, if not almost minimal, depending on s- subpopulations are, right. are at That's higher right. risk. Uh, and we know that because the serodiscordant couple. So if some couples have been married for decades, one person has hep C, the other one doesn't. And there's, there's not, a transmission has not occurred. So then, now what we're looking at is a second. So let me just finish off with the baby boomers. The essential recommendation is that we ask all primary providers to at least have a pep c antibody on the chart at least once in a lifetime for those individuals that are born between 45 and 65
2: that's right that's been cdc policy now for for quite a long time certainly during my training as well
1: sure so then now we have a whole second uh you know in the uh I love the slide. I use it all the time of the four squares that look at the essentially the bimodal distribution, which means two modes in who has hep C in the state of Louisiana. So can we talk now about the opioid sure. epidemic yeah. and help link the opioid epidemic to hepatitis C?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, so one of the big re- uh, ways that, that this virus can be transmitted is through contact through blood. And so sharing syringes, which is a consequence and, and an aspect of the opioid epidemic, certainly, has meant that we've seen a, a real skyrocket in hepatitis C cases. Uh, and so you're referencing some of the data that we have from the Office of Public Health, where when we look at you know, the age groups of folks uh, who are diagnosed with chronic hepatitis C, and going back not even that far, but say 2006, even 2010, uh, you really predominantly see that baby boomer generation. Now, I would hasten to add that they're probably not adequately representing other populations in that, because these are the folks who are actually getting tested. And again, only the CDC, the CDC was only saying test these folks, uh, in really large volumes, but what we definitely see as we move into 2014 and now uh, certainly uh, in 2017, 2018 is this second hump, if you will, in this in this diagram showing this um, younger generation that's now living with chronic hepatitis C, um, and from you know, a lot of data we know that that's coming from sharing needles and uh, related to uh, the opioid epidemic really taking off in this country.
1: So one of the uh, things I was gonna I had it in my notes and um, and I we didn't talk about it while dr. Uh, Gee was here was um, one of the first things I know that she did uh, was was able to make ser- Syringe access uh, legal here in the state Uh, prior to that it it wasn't and so that will help significantly but maybe you can walk us through that process uh, as well.
2: Yeah, we're I mean we're relatively unique within our neighborhood of southern states to have even the possibility of syringe uh, service access or syringe program access and so really there's a a lot of names for what are essentially harm reduction uh, programs focused on uh, really taking uh, either either giving clean syringes or taking Uh, use syringes and returning uh, clean syringes Um, what we have since 2017 is a law in the state that says that uh, local jurisdictions whether that's a parish or a municipality can pass an ordinance to make syringe service programs legal within their jurisdiction so it's not quite you know statewide we can have uh, these programs um, but it means that at least that power that option for those local uh, communities to make this decision was was in there and so far we have New Orleans Baton Rouge and Shreveport
1: and so, coming full circle, I'm so proud to say that the person who actually wrote that ordinance uh, is sitting in this room right here, and that's uh, Liana Elliott. So she was instrumental in being able to get uh, needle uh, services uh, uh, legal here uh, uh, in uh, in Orleans Parish. So now we now we recognize now that either, you know, some of the harm reduction techniques are incredibly important. Um, some of the other ones that I, I wish that we could do because we've seen them around the uh, around the globe. I just don't think that the country is ready right now for it are certainly some of these uh, so-called um, safe injection sites, yeah, thank you, safe injection sites would be ideal uh, to do, and this is a place where people, uh, the data is robust beyond belief in showing that in places uh, around the world, Portugal, the UK, uh, certainly Canada, Vancouver is a leader, uh, in fact, I think theirs is called Insight, um, in that what... Folks are able to go in, they're able to uh, uh, use uh, and inject drugs uh, in a safe space with uh, oftentimes healthcare staff and case managers. No one's ever died in a safe injection site because there's uh, 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 naloxone, which is an opioid reversal agent right there. Of course, able to access clean needles. Um, rates of HIV and Hep C uh, have uh, gone down in communities where safe injection sites exist. But more importantly than anything else is the data that sees that shows that 75% of people who, uh, are injecting at a safe injection site in their first year will start seeking services for addiction treatment and that to me is the most important thing
2: yeah and and so the fortunate thing is we we see a lot of those similar statistics coming out of syringe service programs you know we see five times increased likelihood of actually engaging in uh behavioral or you know substance use treatment therapy to to um hopefully you know uh, help with with anything that somebody wants to address when it comes to their substance use disorder definitely decreases in, in uh, the transmission of HIV and hepatitis C, but there's also, you know, as we go around the state talking with community leaders, there's a, uh, it's kind of like the policies we were talking about earlier. There's a lot to love about syringe service programs. Uh, they also reduce crime. They give the opportunity to distribute naloxone, so they reduce death. Um, and, you know, the communities that we talk to are, are not maybe the ones you would think would be, you know, really leaning into wanting to have a syringe service program, but they see the consequences. Um, and it's their neighbors, it's their loved ones who are dying. They know what the opioid epidemic is wreaking in this, uh, in this state. And um, with the data, they're, they're very willing to, to, to you know, talk about having these programs in their backyard. So we're hoping to see more parishes start to put these
1: out. I, I, I certainly hope so. One of the most interesting statistics that I read, and I think this is going back to uh, uh, safe injection sites, but i imagine the same thing with syringe programs as well, is that property rates, property home uh, values go up because uh, oftentimes needles aren't being left around in neighborhoods, people aren't uh, actively using outside or what have you. And so it was such a random, you know, when I saw that, I was like, of course that makes all the sense in the world.
2: But it's the kind of stuff that people need to hear and and care about. And one of the interesting things that there's, again, lots of flavors of syringe service programs, including just syringe access programs, which don't ask you necessarily to turn in any uh, used needles, but do give you uh, access to clean, uh, sterile syringes even those have been shown in the communities where they're operating to reduce um, the the use syringes that are found in the environment. Sure, I
1: totally believe that. Yeah. So if you're tuned in and you are listening to 102.3 WHIV, this is Resistance Radio. It's a pleasure to have on uh, Dr. Alex Piu, who is the Assistant Secretary of Health and who's been leading the effort toward hepatitis C elimination. We're in the last 15 minutes of the show. It goes by really fast. Um, I know that we've got about six points here. I know the program uh, has about six points. I'm going to kind of go over them, read them read each one, and then just kind of uh, so uh, point number one, uh, with respect to elimination was established a modified hepatitis C medication subscription model for Medicaid and Corrections. And I think we've talked about that uh, pretty well. That has been an amazing feat. Uh, you know, as I start to see other countries starting to eliminate, you know, I think Iceland, I think, is on track to be the first country to eliminate. Uh, uh, there's,
2: a, there's a number that are being, being tracked, but uh, I, I think it's probably
1: one of the only European countries that's, that's on track. Right, and I, I just think it's amazing. And, and, t- and to have Louisiana be the one that's leading the, the country, and what I, I was going to tell Dr. Gee is that when I go and I give lectures, especially if it's lectures where there's other uh, health department folks that are there, they'll invariably always come up to me and then mention, the two of you to say that you guys are leading the country with creating the subscription model. So, just incredible kudos! That, but that's exciting. <laughs> All right. So, uh, number two, educate public on the availability of cure and mobilize priority populations for screening. So, how are we going about doing that?
2: Yeah. So, we're you know going to use a variety of different media. Again, you know, one of the the challenges, the fun challenges that we have is we still need to get to the birth cohort, the 1945 to 1965 baby boomers. But we have this group of folks who are coming. Um, uh, who are are developing chronic hepatitis C who maybe don't engage with media in the same way. So we're looking at a multimedia strategy, really trying to be of the times um, and engage people on social media. But but the most important thing would be really leveraging social network and getting the word out that, you know, this is a a, a terrible uh, infectious disease, that you can have it and not know it, and it's pretty widespread in our state, that there is a cure and we have access to it.
1: That's 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 the great. Action to take is get screen. Yeah, and I and I agree with you that you're right that you're also dealing with two cohorts of individuals that are accessing media completely different. So being creative on that front, uh, yeah. and uh, and I imagine that you're probably using social media pretty yeah, so well. Our,
2: our campaign will be launching a little bit at the beginning of November, and so hopefully you'll start to see billboards, you'll start to see uh, you know ads on Facebook, and, and really the goal is to is to get people to engage with wanting to learn more and, and get
1: screen. And- and so how are you, what are you going to be, where are you going to be pushing them or guiding them to? Are you, are you going to go check with your primary, go to this website, or what's the actual campaign going to be looking at? So it
2: depends on sort of the, the space, What? how much can you pack into it, but um, yeah, both of those. So we're going to have a, a website that uh, we can direct traffic to that's going to push, or that's going to direct people back to providers. But again, the idea is also go to your provider even if that's your first stop. We're hoping that this actually, the approach... Uh, creates a little bit of inquisitiveness and like, what is this? Why is there so much campaign around it? We would love the situation in which more people are talking to their primary care providers and saying, what is this? What is this all about? As a way to start a conversation and lead the screening.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. The other thing, too, is that we talked about earlier is finding all of those folks that uh, that were turned away and, and, and getting those folks to come back, because that's going to be a huge pool of people right there. They were motivated to get treated in the first place, because they went through all of the various uh, hoops that initially had been put up, all the barriers. So I would imagine that would be a great population, because they were initially motivated in the that's first right. place.
2: That's right and, and you know apropos of the person that you treated recently, this 21 year old, I mean, it's important for them to also know that you know one of the big, big things that we didn't talk about that we did was remove all prior authorization requirements for the authorized genetic. Yes, of yes. And one of the key ones is sobriety. So we did not we do not have a sobriety requirement in the state anymore. and that's both for the public but also for our providers to really understand the data are clear that there's not an increased rate of reinfection between sobriety uh, uh, between uh, people who use drugs and those who are, are sober. Um, and, and so no one should have a barrier to being treated. You can be treated through your use. Right?
1: And there was a, I think that study was called the Simplify Study, which was yeah. an amazing study, which showed, like like you said, that when you looked at those that used drugs versus those that didn't, the hep C outcome uh, treatment success rates were uh, pretty much the same
2: that's right and we're seeing again there's been studies also looking at reinfection which is another question that comes up and those yes. are also not not uh, you know we don't see a
1: ridiculously high of level sure of reinfection. sure and that goes back to when I get asked about reinfection in almost like a, well you know these folks are just gonna go and be reinfected it almost has a value to, but that's a whole different story right. but that usually prompts me to have a conversation or allows me to start a conversation the harm reduction that's exactly, <laughs> and the importance of harm reduction. By the, all, all of those strategies have to be launched at the same time. Sure, yeah. absolutely. All right, so the next one here is expand uh, hep C uh, screening and expedited linkage to, to cure. And that's the other thing. Let's talk about linkage to care versus linkage to cure. I think that's so smart. Where did that come from, linkage to cure? I can't take credit for that. That's at least uh, the
2: way that our Bureau of Infectious Disease has been talking about it in the Hep C community as well, this this idea of like finally being able to say we're going to link people to cure rather than care. Now, linkage to care is still critical, especially for people living with HIV, but but here we have that ability to to really act. Um, and, and as a provider, you know, there's few things that we can do that sort of turn around a deadly sure. infection in 12 weeks. Yeah,
1: it's truly uh, amazing. So expanding screening is super important, and again, get to, to linkage yeah. to cure is incredibly important. And,
2: and if I can just jump in on an equity piece there, we're really trying to move to opt-out screening, meaning that when you go to a provider, you know, I'm a primary care doc, the, the conversation is not, tell me about your risk factors and let me decide if I should screen you. It should be, listen, everybody in my practice, I screen for hepatitis C, for HIV. Unless you have a you know injection, I'm going to also screen you, you know, and, and, and keeping that up. And certainly if there are risk factors that make me think I need to screen more frequently, I might adjust my practice. But we're really trying to to shift to that mindset one to increase screening so that we really can reach everybody but two it's the best way to 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 head off stigma because this shouldn't really be that you die because of stigma
1: totally totally agree and i believe i mean i check my my patients every year for hepatitis c and oftentimes when i talk to other folks about that they'll be like well it's a it's a waste of money i'm like well first of all the test costs like six dollars and it's you know, the I, there's a there's responding? a cure. Right, like exactly. I can cure people now, and then every year I have one or two conversions, and that exactly. one and that is worth it for me exactly. uh, uh, to do. So I think one of the most exciting things that you did was uh, you strengthened Hep C surveillance, uh, uh, and, and 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 to me, I think the reason you did that, and I was that was going to be the last question I ask, is that that was going to help determine what success was.
2: That's right. We need, to, we need to know the denominator. We need to also help the providers. I think as we go around the state talking about this and talking about opt-out screening, one of the first questions that we get back is, whoa, so then I have to follow up on that? Am I in charge of linkage to cure? Like, how does this work? And so what we're really trying to, trying to do is establish ourselves as that helpful backbone. We're going to have that data coming to us. We then uh, are also going to be reaching out through our linkage to cure specialists to help connect people to providers. So they don't have to feel that the burden is on them. This is part of us being able to take some of that information.
1: And and just kind of be clear, just to make sure that my understanding about it is correct. So when you are, uh, when you're essentially, you're looking at hep C viral loads, I would imagine. So somebody comes in, they have a hep C viral load. That is, of course, the definition of a chronic hep C, uh, of having chronic hepatitis C. Then what happens is they get exposed to the medications. And then after some time, and it really happens, I'm, I'm telling you what, Right. For second visit, it's, right. they right. are undetectable. It it's down. unbelievable. And, and I know the recommendation is to not check, but I check every visit. You know why? Because they love to see it. Yeah. They and love seeing, they that, see that line go down. It yeah. is, cause it's graphed for yeah. them. And they see that line and they see it remain undetectable. So I would imagine that one of the reasons why you strengthened the surveillance program was so that you can find the once you hit undetectables, uh, you're able to get those negative values. In the past, maybe the state yeah. didn't collect negative values.
2: Yeah, we didn't we didn't collect negative values uh, for this or other infectious diseases that we we changed uh, the sanitary code. Somebody's cured with the data that we get access to. Um, and, and that's really key. The other thing is um, it's very hard to get somebody to come in. You might have experienced this to come in uh, three months after they've taken three months of medication for a confirmatory test. This allows us to somewhat crowdsource that. So if somebody gets a test in some other context, they don't necessarily need to go back to your clinic to get you to write that sure. confirmatory test. Sure. We will have that data, and we will already have confirmed sure. that it's cured.
1: And, and, and to me, that, that also showed that you guys were looking ahead, trying to figure out how you were going to define yeah. success. That's right. And you knew that the tools that were available to you were not... not going to help you figure out what success was. So you had to actually change the code so that you would be able to better define what success is. Is that a fair way of describing that? Absolutely,
2: and there's this concept of sort of a care cascade, looking at all the steps between finding somebody's status and getting them to cure. And and one of the key ones that we rarely have information on is how well are we doing with even screening? And this gives us the ability to say, not only are we curing the folks that we know about, but are we even deploying enough tests in this community to, to probably identify the folks that we need to? This will give us that information
1: too. And then one of the last things here is expand provider capacity to treat hepatitis C. How are you guys going about doing that?
2: Yeah, so we've got um, a, a training program that uh, for folks who are experienced uh, treaters is, is just an hour really to tell them about our specific drug authorized generic hepatoclusa. We've got a half-day training for folks who want to really understand, you know, primary care providers and anybody else who want to understand how do we use this um, with a little bit more depth and kind of gives them more information, uh, and then we're going to have ongoing support um, through uh, teleconferences uh, uh, that are accessible throughout the state. Um, so that we'll we'll talk about you know a case conference, you know give us a, t- a tough, um, uh, uh, challenging uh, patient encounter that you've had that we can help with, uh, as well as you know add a, a, an extra lesson that we can do every week there. So all of that is being launched, um, and so that's really the the medicine side of things. The other thing we're really trying to do is. Um, again, talk about equity talk about the stigma talk about welcoming people into your clinic because there's the there's the science part of understanding what we can do to treat but we also need to make sure that providers want to reach out to this population and really serve them This is a great way to welcome people into clinics who have uh, quite rightly felt uh, cut out of, of the healthcare system and uh, we want to make sure that we're approaching that in the
1: right way. And with all those different training options, you're really meeting multiple clinicians at, at, at different places where That's they right. are. That's right. So and
2: sending folks to, to specialists like you and our hepatologists, our GI doctors, who, who need that higher level of, of complex care because maybe they have kidney disease or things like that. Um, but for most people, we, we don't want to waste your time and, and frankly, have... Uh, Continued waiting lines of of nine months to 18 months in the state um, when we have the cure and ready to go We want to get
1: absolutely so then for our last question We only have a couple minutes left and it's still this hour went by so fast Um, How how do you define success? How does the state define success? How at the end of five years? Are you gonna be like wow this was amazing?
2: So so the WHO has set a goal of eliminating hepatitis uh, viral hepatitis really uh, uh, Worldwide, so we're using their definitions. They say by the end of 2030 They want to have 90% of people who are living with hepatitis C diagnosed, 80% of them treated. We've uh, moved the clock up. We're saying by the end of 2024, we want to have uh, certainly 80% of people treated. We didn't actually set a goal for ourselves on diagnosis, but we know we can't get to treatment unless we diagnose. So really that means... Uh, being able to declare elimination in this state in five years, that we've uh, treated 80% of the people living in this state with hepatitis C.
1: That's amazing. And and the other thing, too, that I think is so important and so necessary to repeat is that you guys are, or the state is also uh, going into the Department of Corrections. And, That's right. And uh, in, in, is there a, is, and, is, and beyond. So
2: the Department of Corrections is a core piece of this, and we're also working on um, making sure that there's a warm handoff as people are re entering their communities and they may be entering Medicaid. Um, or otherwise, that we have a way to con- to have continuity of treatment, and then we want to reach the commercial insured. We want to reach the uninsured, and so all of that is is on our on our uh, dashboard to address.
1: Amazing, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Alex Ballou, please give it up. What an amazing thank you. Thank you. program! Thank you for everybody that was here. Axel, thank you very much. Scott, thank you. Thank you uh, to uh, uh, Jonathan at the station. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, thank you to our live audience. I love all of you guys. You guys are awesome. For this opportunity. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. It's been an honor for you to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, guys.